Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them about the son of, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling, to the, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Lord, um, we come before you this morning. Um, I know I speak for myself and maybe a few others, just life is stressful and there's just a lot of things going on. It's the summer, it's a difficult season for many people. Um, but Lord, we know that you are constant. We know that you are you are ever-present for us. You are the Lord of everything, as we see in this passage. And I pray that we would bask in that truth today, and it would bring us comfort, and it would bring us security. I pray that you would be with Billy as he speaks, give him clarity of mind and speech as he presents this passage. I pray that you would help us to see that we, the things that we need to see, open our hearts to hear the things that we need to hear. I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged, and above all things, that we would find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I don't know about you and how 2020 went for you. It was a weird year, right? So one of the things that happened is, uh, so when I first moved here, some friends of mine from Missouri um, knew that I was moving back to North Carolina to plant a church, and they knew that I was not great at resting, and so they all threw in some money and bought me a Nintendo Switch, which is awesome, um, and every now and again, I would play it, and so I realized it was kind of like we were all forced to slow down and stop, right, and I don't know if you pay attention to video games or not, but during the pandemic, people lost their minds over a game called Animal Crossing, so if you don't know what it is, it's basically a bunch of animals who do chores, that's the game, right? So I didn't know anything really about the game. I just knew that people were super stoked about it. Every time it was on the news, it was on all my social media feeds, people were just going crazy. They loved it. They were playing Animal Crossing. Maybe it was because they felt like they were stuck in their houses, and so this was a way for them to kind of go around as an animal and do things. So a friend of mine was talking to me about it, and I told him, yeah, you know, I don't know. He's like, listen, man, it's awesome. It's so great. We love it. We have fun playing all the time. And I was like, okay, okay. I started to get really excited. I started to think, maybe, maybe this game is actually going to be really fun. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to buy it for you. 
Because that's what I, I think, I like it that much. And so at that point, I was like, all right, I'm in. And y'all, when I say it's animals doing chores, that is what the game is. I turned it on, started playing it, and within an hour, I was like, I hate this. I hate this. I don't want to play this. Who made this game? Why does it exist? I was so incredibly disappointed. It was nothing like I expected it to be. Have you guys ever had a moment like that where you were excited about something and then it ended up being totally different than what you expected? That's what's happening in our passage. What we see today is the disciples had anticipated, longed for, prayed for, yearned for the Messiah. And then they found out he wasn't exactly what they thought he was going to be. They rightly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But then they wrongly interpret what that meant. For them, right, the Messiah was going to be this one who brought in a political revolution. He was going to unseat Rome. He was going to put Israel back on top. But the way of the kingdom was not what they expected. Because the way of the kingdom is low, slow, and hidden. Jesus would indeed free the disciples, but not in the way that they imagined. His freedom wasn't from a temporary foreign occupation, but from the darkness of sin that we are all bound to. And I wonder this morning if we too haven't wrongfully interpreted who Jesus is. David Platt has famously said it this way. He says, we're starting to redefine Christianity. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class, American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, and who would never call us to give away everything that we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Today, we're going to take a look, an honest look, at the heart of Jesus. He speaks plainly, right, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? I know we're jumping back in in the second part here, but we've seen Jesus uses parables, analogies. He's always speaking in these kind of mysterious ways, not here. Here he just speaks plainly. And as he does, here's what we see. We are called to die to ourselves so that we might find life in Christ. We are called to die to ourselves so that we might find life in Christ. There are three questions that our text answers this morning. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does he expect of you? So from this point forward, again, Mark is, is kind of taking us from seeing who Jesus is. The disciples have been learning, seeing, and now they believe that he is the Messiah. Now Jesus is facing and headed towards his death. He is headed to Calvary. Jesus' face is set towards the cross on mission. And he is instructing his disciples on what true discipleship is. What it really means to follow him. And it makes them 
deeply uncomfortable. But the call is there. And here's the call. Live a cruciform life. That word cruciform, it means a life shaped in the cross. We live a life of sacrifice, of love, like Christ. And this is challenging, but it is so important for us to explore it. So let's dive in, and let's see first, we must confess Christ. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here's what's happening. We catch up to the scene, and we see Jesus is now heading north, right? He had just healed a man, and now he is heading north with his disciples. And kind of like when you're on a road trip, you just start having these conversations. Maybe they start out kind of casual, and then they get a little bit more serious the longer the trip goes. That's what's happening here. Jesus asks, hey, 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 who, who do people say that I am? What are people talking about? What are they saying? Now, now, here's the thing we need to remember. Last week, we saw Jesus bringing gradual sight to the blind man in Bethsaida. And this is what's happening here. He's bringing gradual spiritual sight to the disciples concerning who he is and what the Messiah should be. So he asks this question, and the disciples answer, Well, you know, some think you're John the Baptist. Some people think that you're just uh, Elijah. And then one of them steps up and goes, Or just one of the prophets. We don't know. I mean, they're just, everybody's talking about stuff. So here's the thing. The prophets are a big deal. The fact that people are saying this is showing that people are taking Jesus very serious. But none of the prophets are the guy. The prophets are the one that point forward to the guy, to the Messiah. So it, they're, they're kind of trying to honor Jesus, but they're missing the point. It's kind of like when someone says, Jesus is a really great moral teacher. I really like the things he has to say, you know, but I don't, I don't follow him. They, they applaud him, right, while denying who he really is. They honor him, but they misrepresent him. That's when Jesus asks them, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And you can see the disciples kind of start to look at each other like, well, I don't know, what do, you, do you want to say it? Do you want to say it? And Peter just says it, you are the Christ. Matthew's gospel actually gives us a little bit more lengthy of what Peter says. He, he, says, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is what Jesus responds to him with. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is tremendous affirmation, right? Jesus just gave Peter the best attaboy he's ever been given. He is just like, Peter, yes, that's it. You got it. God is revealing who I am to you. And Peter's like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. This is exciting. Now, why does Mark not include it? We don't really know. We can only guess. Maybe it's because Peter is the one who was Mark's source in writing his gospel, and Peter really was trying to be humble and made no mention of this. But Peter identifying Jesus as the Christ, he, he, he identifies that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. That means the disciples are starting to get it. They believe that Jesus is the one that Israel has been waiting for. 
All of Israel had been waiting since the time of David for a superhuman leader who would overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's people from the four corners of the world and make Jerusalem and Palestine the center of the world, establishing the perfect reign of Christ. Like you could think of a, of a kid who just had a terrible day at school, got bullied and picked on, comes home and his mom would say, I know it's a bad day, but one day, one day, the Messiah will come and he will make everything right. And Jesus knew he was about to upend their idea of what the messianic reign of Jesus was going to be. He strongly urges them to keep quiet because he knows that they have, again, this political agenda, this motivation to make Israel the seat of power. And he knew that if they would stir the masses, they could create a political upheaval and anoint Jesus as king. But this wasn't the way. Now, this is when, typically, when we, you hear a sermon on this passage, we would, we would kind of cue the music. We would, we would turn the lights down even more. And we would say, who do you say that he is? I've preached that before. I have. And here's what I, here's what I would say. I'm confident many of you would say that Jesus is the Christ. You would declare that proudly and happily. We may even have some emotional responses to this challenge. But if we stop here, we lose the challenge that exists for us as well on what it means to follow Jesus. We must declare him as the Christ. We must declare him as God's chosen one. But we see that when we define following Jesus, we see that it's not easy and it is not comfortable. Friends, it's not. We have to see God's ways over ours. That's what we see second, God's ways over man. Verse 31 and he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yikes. So in speaking plainly, Jesus conceals nothing. And he just puts it out there. He lays it all out. This is a detailed outline of how it's all going to go down. He intimately described his coming sufferings. He, me he mentions the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It's an explicit reference to the three groups in the Sanhedrin who are going to officially examine and reject him. Even his resurrection is mentioned, though it would remain totally incomprehensible for the disciples until after the glorious fact. See, what's happening is Jesus is saying all this, right? That, that Peter makes this amazing declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, you've got it. And they're all like, it's about to go down. Everything's coming together. It's all working out. I'm so excited. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to go die. They're totally confused. This is a nonsensical revelation to them. They're appalled. And they all kind of keep it together, except for Peter. Peter, it says in verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the language here suggests that Peter did this with an air of kind of like a protective superiority, as if he kind of like puts his arm around Jesus and it's like, no, 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 come here, come here. And like a stage whisper, look, look, Jesus, of course, I believe you're the Messiah, but, but you got your information all wrong. You got to stop this stuff about suffering and death. You're going to lose all your credibility. And Jesus puts a stop to this quickly. 
He turns to face Peter, and he sees all the other disciples are kind of like peering around the corner, like, what's he going to do? What's he going to, you think he's going to, Peter's got it, right? He's going to change his mind. Yeah, he's going to change his mind. And that's not what happens at all. Instead, he has this explosive rebuke where he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. These are the harshest words that Jesus has ever spoken to a devoted, well-meaning heart. Peter had become the unwitting carrier of the demonic doctrine, parallel to that which Christ faced in the wilderness when Satan tempted him to abandon the Father's will and seek an easy saviorhood. To that, Jesus hears the accent of Satan and says, Be gone. That had been a terrible temptation for Jesus because he knew the horrors that awaited for him and he could hear the voice of the enemy in Peter's voice. Friends, true soul-saving salvation only comes through a suffering Messiah. There was no other way. Why were the disciples rejecting Jesus as the suffering Messiah? I mean, hadn't they read the scriptures? You guys have read Isaiah 53. It makes sense, right? It's because the idea was completely out of sync with human reasoning. Who would ever design a method of saving the world that would include disaster, despair, and death? No one. That's why Israel often misinterpreted its own scriptures. The very ones that told of the coming suffering Messiah. Natural reason says that a savior has to come with position and power. But Jesus says if you think that way, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Coram Deo, if we are to confess Christ, we must embrace a suffering Messiah, a God no one would have ever thought of. That's why if you ask me, Billy, how do you know, how are you sure of Christianity? Because it doesn't make sense. Every religion says do good things and God will be happy with you. Christianity says God stepped down to serve us. It doesn't make sense. Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. He thinks he has a better plan than God does. Peter wants a Jesus who fits his agenda. Do you? Peter thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be, and he attempts to reshape and redefine him to fit his conception. Are we not often guilty of doing the very same thing? Give me a Jesus I can control, one I can kind of conjure up in my image and likeness. No, you and I must learn and affirm the ways of God, not man. You may not fully understand it. It may not be safe or easy, but it will, however, be best. So taking our suffering Savior into our heart and loving him may come far easier now. Right, this side of the cross, because we have the full picture of the revelation in his word. But there is something more that is required. We must embrace his example as a model for living. And that is not easy. Because we see, thirdly, Jesus calls us to die. Jesus calls us to die. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him. Now he's getting everybody in. And with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Jesus just said is absolutely, unbelievably scandalous. Jesus, again, he wanted everyone to hear. Not just his disciples. He sees there's a crowd. He's like, hey, hey, whoa, you guys come over here too. Everyone circle up. Everybody pay attention. And he calls everyone to circle up and he gives them a hard challenge. Now, we glamorize the cross as a religious symbol. But it was a disgusting and brutal instrument of death by slow torture. It was the electric chair, the hangman's noose, the syringe used for lethal injection. It was a statement from the Romans to all their conquered people. We are the master, you are scum. And for Jesus to say, take up your cross, it was deeply startling. Being Jesus' disciple requires three essentials. First, deny yourself. Give up the right to self-determination. Live as Christ directs. Treasure and value Jesus more than yourself, your comforts, or your aspirations. Put to death the idol of I, the idol of self. We say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. The second, take up your cross. In other words, die. Luke 9, 23 adds the word daily because that is what we must do. Die to ourselves daily. This is not normal. This is not natural. Like Jesus, we take the low place. Let me give you an example because I think we tend to dress this up a bit. You guys have heard die daily before. If you've been in the church for some time, this is not a new concept. But I think when we, what we do is we tend to kind of have these epic, sweeping, noble thoughts where we think that the only way to do this is to love the poor and downtrodden. And, and yes, that's true. But friends, again, we live quorum Deo, right? We live in the presence of God for the glory of God, meaning that all of our life, the sum total of our life, is lived for his glory, which means we die every single day and it affects every part of our life. So an example, there's a husband this is really relatable for some of you, who tosses his dirty underwear on the bedroom floor every single day, okay? Guess track with me? Yeah, yeah nobody, nobody's making eye contact with me now. This is great. Uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So there's a husband who tosses his dirty underwear on the bedroom floor every day, and he doesn't make the connection between doing the laundry and clean underwear because his mom had always done the laundry for him. It just kind of magically appeared in his drawer. That's how life had gone for him. And so this interaction happens where the husband comes to his wife and he says, Honey, I'm, I'm all out of clean underwear. You know, like, what's the deal? And she says to him, uh, Can you remember to put it in the laundry basket? That way I won't forget it. And the husband responds with, What good would that do? You don't do the laundry anyway. So, uh-oh. Something's about to happen, right? Now, Notice how the husband shifted the conversation from himself to her. Why? Because he's trying to win. He's trying to take the high place. He's living for himself. He's clearly selfish, 
But for us to understand the kind of dying to self, the humility that Jesus is calling us to, let's just consider the wife for a minute. What are her options? I mean, besides dumping the laundry on his head, what are her options, right? Now, the typical response is usually retaliation, right? She could be like, I can't believe you said that. You're the one with the dirty laundry all over the floor. I'm the one who does all the work around here. You guys have you guys see, you, you kind of, you guys are like, this is too familiar, Billy. You're getting in our business. Just track with me. That's how we typically live, right? We escalate. Eye for an eye, tit for tat. But where does this lead? To more fighting, more arguing, more words. It goes nowhere. When our goal is to live for ourselves, selfish ambition, to make the other person see it our way, we go against the way of the kingdom. We live for our kingdom over Christ's. We live for ourselves instead of dying to ourselves. So what is she supposed to do? What is this wife supposed to do? Because the other options seem so unnatural. First thing she could do is try to understand. What do you mean when you say I don't do the laundry? Second thing she could do is confess. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Sometimes I'm slow with the laundry. She could defend herself without taking pot shots at her husband. She could say, I don't actually think that's true. Or she could be silent and say nothing. These kind of responses require stopping in the middle of this interaction, in the middle of this argument, and either letting the husband have the last word or admitting that he might be partially right. But, but you might be sitting there thinking, whoa, 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 Billy. What kind of misogynistic, what are you trying to say here? Isn't the husband the one with the problem? We balk at the injustice of it all. Right? Even if he is partially right, and they had divided chores, and she's a little behind on the laundry, for her to humbly admit that she had done something wrong, it feels like she's helping him hurt her. The argument shifts from his problem to hers. He wins. But do you see what's happening? She gives him the best seat at the table, because humility hurts. But such is love. When love is difficult, it's often because it involves humiliation. When we choose to die to ourself, we choose humility in an argument, right? The disagreement ceases because only one person is arguing then. And the argument dies for want of fuel. Choosing humility for this wife doesn't necessarily mean that she starts picking up all the dirty underwear, that she agrees with the husband's point of view. It simply means that rather, rather than be controlled by the last mean thing the other person said, she chooses to take the lower place, to die to herself. When we die to ourselves, do you know what happens? Do you know who you look like? Jesus. So again, the challenge is that we first deny ourselves. And second, we die to ourselves. And third, finally, we follow Jesus. Following Jesus means even mundane arguments, right? Even little insignificant things like the laundry are opportunities to see the power of God step into our lives. When we deny ourselves, when we die to ourselves, when we follow Jesus into humility, we create a vacuum in which God can step into and fill rather than trying to manage and control things on our own. Jesus said that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Waiting for God is the hard part because we need faith to believe that God is going to take care of us when others don't. We can't love truly without faith. See, following Jesus is radical. Following Jesus is indeed the way of humility, but it's also the way to an abundant and good life. 
A life where, yes, even simple, mundane moments can be turned into a way to die to ourselves that Jesus might be glorified. But what's the alternative? So if you're saying, that sounds crazy, Billy. I can't imagine, like, trying to posture myself in a way to live humble. I can't, I I don't know. Like, I kind of know what's best for me. But here's what Jesus says. He says, if you save or treasure your life above all else, congratulations, you will lose it. We've all heard the adage, you can't take it with you, right? You never see a U-Haul attached to a hearse. The one who plays it safe and considers his existence more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and eternal life. He loses both. In contrast, the one who gives his life for Jesus and the gospel will actually save it. Following Jesus involves risking it all safety security satisfaction in this world but he promises us that it leads to a reward that this world can never ever ever offer there is a life worth giving for the glory of God and the gospel it's a dying to self that others might live it is not safe friends it's the normal Christian life J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, there are, in fact, two motives that should spur us constantly to share our faith, to tell others about Jesus. The first is love for God and concern for his glory. The second is love for man and concern for his welfare. We die to ourselves. We die to ourselves so we can love others. C.T. Studd, who was a missionary to China, India, and Sudan, who gave his life to see the gospel flourish, said, we will dare to trust our God. And we will do it with joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. Friends, our lives are set free to live for Jesus. This is an inverse life that sees death as a reward when we join with Paul saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I know too many people who are chasing something they can't get. It's like a carrot on a stick. If I just have this, if I just get this, if I could get this job, when the kids get out of the house, if my kid would just sleep through the night, if I could just have this, if I had all the money in the world, I'd be so happy. No, you wouldn't. You would be as miserable as you are right now because nothing in this world satisfies you. Cars break down. Kids fail us. Jobs are terrible. When we live for this world, We are numbing and deceiving ourselves, thinking that somehow it's going to make us happy, and it doesn't. It's a lie. And Jesus is trying to shake his disciples awake. It doesn't matter if Israel is the seat of power. You were before, and you denied God. And where did it lead you? Straight into Babylon's arms. It will happen again and again and again. You need freedom from your sin. And that's what I've come to do. I love the way Piper says it. He says, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed to be seen with them. Loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, if you are embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, 
And he's not referring to lapses of courage and when you don't share your faith, but a settled state of heart towards him. If you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. We must understand what the Christian life truly is, friends. The way of Jesus may be hard, but the path in the end are glorious. And we say this often, we don't earn our salvation by doing, 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 doing. And it maybe feels like this morning you're like, well, you're telling me I gotta do all this and fight all this. No, 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 here's what I'm telling you. That you, because of Christ's perfect obedience, are seen before the holy, omnipotent God as declared innocent and free of guilt because Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins on the cross of Calvary and rose again, securing your salvation. But if you can regurgitate all of that and have no change in here, friends, you've got a really good memory, but I don't think you know Jesus. If you are not compelled by Jesus to follow him, to say when Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, if you're not saying, beating your chest, I will walk to Calvary with you because I know that anything this world promises will only lead to dissatisfaction and failure. Nothing but moth and rust destroying everything. But if I follow you, when I look at you, Jesus, I see someone who found this unbelievable treasure in a field. And he knew that nothing in the world could, could, could compare to that, so he sold everything he had so that he could get that. Again, the kingdom is low, slow, and hidden. Nobody says it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young man who was, and he was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts, but we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means both death and life. Ephesians says the old man is gone so that the new man can take up residence within us. May all of us learn how to die for Christ. May all of us learn how to die for Christ for the gospel that we and others may truly live. May all of us learn what it is and how to live the normal Christian life. This morning, set your mind to Calvary. Think of that moment.
Consider the cost Christ paid. Matthew 27 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, Jesus is crucified. And they said, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So you can picture the scene. Jesus is gasping for breath as he is on the cross. They're saying, if you're the Son of God, come down. If you are God, take care of yourself. Get on down from that cross. Look, guys, check out Jesus. Use your power to protect you from pain. Use your divinity to protect your humanity. You saved others, but you can't save yourself. You healed the sick and defended the weak, but who's going to defend you? And they continue to jeer him, and he trusts in God all the while. And they're yelling things like, look where you ended up because you trusted in God like a little child. He abandoned you, Jesus. You surrendered yourself to God. And look at this. He takes advantage of you by sticking you on the cross. And here's what happens. Jesus presses against the nails to catch his, be- his breath. His raw back scrapes against the wood. The teachers and elders scream at him to do a sign. They tell him if he would jump down from the cross, they would believe. But Jesus will have none of it. He will not turn inward and seek human glory, nor be ruled by his feelings. He says no to his own desires because he trusts his Father and he loves to the end. He died that we might live. Corndale, we are called to die to ourselves, so that we may live in Christ. Jesus sets his face to the cross to give us life and when we die to self, we think we're forfeiting all that is good but in reality, we are shedding bondage to live an abundant life. Jesus loves to the end because he knows the cross leads to an empty tomb. And we die to self so that we too might rise to live with Christ. The kingdom of God is low, slow, and hidden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've called us to be a people who cling to you, who seek you, who deny ourselves. Far too often, God, we are we are tempted to live for ourselves. We think that this world is going to bring satisfaction, and it doesn't. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring hope. It brings nothing. No joy. No peace. No hope. It gives temporary numbness. But Lord, you bring life and life eternal. You bring resurrection and truth and hope and joy You call us to shed the old man that we might put on the new. Would we do that this morning, Lord? Would we seek you above all else, Lord? Pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.